This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. This week on the Composer Chronicles, I have the pleasure of introducing you to composer Juan Pablo Contreras. Juan Pablo is a Latin Grammy-nominated composer who combines Western classical music and Mexican folk music to create his own unique style of composition. He has become a universal music recording artist and has a prolific career as a composer for the concert stage, having his works performed by major orchestras such as the National Symphony Orchestra, the Simon Bolivar Symphony Orchestra of Venezuela, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and the Mexico City Philharmonic. Furthermore, he has won several awards, including the Jalisco Orchestral Composition Contest, the ASCAP Morton Gould Young Composer Award, and the BMI William Schumann Prize. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear Juan Pablo's orchestral work, Mariachitlan. This is the Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 56, Juan Pablo Contreras. Hello, Juan Pablo. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. Of course. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, it's been a while since we actually started talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been a fan for a while, and then I sent you some of my music, and I'm finally glad to be here and sharing with your audience what I do and what I'm all about musically. Absolutely, yeah. When you reached out to me, I was like... Somebody, somebody that I'm not reaching out to is interested in my podcast, <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, it's so it was it was quite refreshing and and uh, very appreciated that you reached out to me. So so thank you, and I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Yeah, I like that you do both like interviews with composers and also some like introducing pieces to an audience, which I think is so important in in the classical music world. We sometimes take for granted and assume that all people know everything about every piece of music and we don't take the time to explain what's going on and not only that explain why we're so passionate about this music and i think i love how things are changing and how podcasts and you know just Mm -hmm. the 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 internet has really helped us connect with people in a different way which i think is 
very necessary in the classical music world. Absolutely. Well, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, your journey to becoming the composer you are, you are today? Yeah, so I grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico. I started playing violin when I was six. I come from a musical family. My mother is a concert pianist, so classical music was just a part of the household and something we just breathed. We didn't really talk too much about it, but I was immediately attracted to the sounds of classical music because that's what I grew up with. So I asked my parents that I wanted to become a violinist when I was six, started playing violin, uh, played in a few like youth orchestras, but the youth orchestra age in Mexico was between like 10 years old and 30 years old. Like you know, <laughs> almost had too wide of a ra age range. Mm. So I didn't really feel at home too much in that world yeah. um but what, what what eventually became very popular at my school um you know elementary school and into the high school was rock music oh wow people wanted to play electric guitar so i kind of changed lanes for a while and became uh, an electric bass player and i played in many like heavy metal bands and eventually i joined a, a metal band in mexico that was interest they they call themselves a symphonic progressive metal band so okay. basically blending classical music or symphonic music with metal music hmm. and that kind of uh, reintroduced me to the classical music world because as a band member i i thought like well if we're gonna do this we we need to learn how to write for the orchestra so i started to just buy a bunch of tchaikovsky scores and just opening them up and seeing like okay how do we do this you yeah. know, bought my first like uh, Sibelius software to start writing music, um, and 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 eventually learned about film music as well. And I was like, oh wow, there's there's a way to write new or classical music, so that you know it can be you know played on films. So mm -hmm. um, after high school, I moved to the U.S. to L.A. to to study classical composition, but always thinking about. I'm going to become a film composer. That's the only place that I knew that classical, you know, orchestral music had a had a home. Mm -hmm. um, and when I when I moved to LA, I started to meet so many living composers, which I had no idea that, you know, you could write concert music and that it could be played. And I fell in love with that. I did a bit of film music, but I didn't love the, you know, the, the limitations or, you know, time constrictions in, in terms mm -hmm. of like, you gotta write the one minute cue for this film or write it in this style. You know, I, I was very attracted to the creative freedom that came with writing concert music. Mm -hmm. So I pursued that path, you know, did my undergrad at CalArts, then moved to New York to study at the Manhattan School of Music, lived a total of six years in New York, also uh, worked in the publishing world with uh, shot music. Uh, okay. Was an editor and engraver there. Um, and then eventually moved back to LA to pursue a doctorate degree at USC where I've been teaching and I've been really lucky to be able to call myself an orchestral composer. It's a very competitive world. It's very difficult to get into the orchestra world mm -hmm. and most of my catalog is orchestral. I was lucky that I, um, at an early career age, I won a couple of big prizes like the BMI William Schumann Prize, that's like the first prize of the BMI competition. Mm -hmm. um, that really, with an orchestral piece, which really, you know, catapulted my my career in the span yeah. of the year, it had already been played by 10 orchestras, which was, you know, huge for a 
23 year old or something like that. So yeah. I, I, early on, I got that label as a, oh, you're an orchestra composer. And I was like, well, I have that one good piece, but I'm not really, <laughs> but I really, you know, took advantage of that uh, and, and just started to write more orchestra music. Um, and that's been kind of my, my career, yeah, how, how, how that took off and, and how I've been able to become an orchestral composer. And I think my big thing is that I write orchestral music that's very Mexican sounding, like it really mm -hmm. celebrates Mexico. And my whole mission has been to uh, kind of find a, a, a musical place where classical and Mexican music can coexist to create yeah. a new sound that has that synthesis be between those two worlds that I loved and both worlds I grew up with. And also kind of what, what you're doing, I'm very passionate about um, making classical music more uh, accessible and more enjoyable to, to people. I, I, I don't like this idea of classical music being something that you have to really dress up for and, and you know, yeah. that's for a specific crowd, a specific age range. And I think as, as composers and, and yeah, that's why I really enjoy your podcast. I, I think we have a responsibility to reach out, explain what's so awesome about this music. And mm -hmm. there's really no, I mean, in, in my musical mind, there's no competition for this amazing medium where you have a hundred musicians on stage making music, no microphones needed. It's it's really uh, some, some beautiful sounds come out of the orchestra and the classical music world. And so I'm very excited about doing that as well, both as a composer and conductor. I'm constantly reaching out to the audience, explaining, you know, my music is very narrative because of that as well. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my my background as a composer. Wonderful. Yeah, I thank you for understanding what what I'm trying to get with my podcast. It's it has been such an incredible way for me to try and get people to understand that classical music isn't as accessible, isn't as inaccessible as one might think. Um, yeah. And I. I a lot of it comes from my own personal experience watching my friends be uh, either somebody making comments to them or just sitting in an audience listening to some older crowds talk about music in such a way that makes it sound like, oh, I, I don't belong here. Um, yeah. And the more that I would feel that way, the more I wanted to make sure that Classical music should be something that everybody should be able to experience. There's so much history into it. There's so much emotion. There's yeah. there's a lot behind it. And if everybody is given the chance, I'm sure that people, more people, would be able to uh, see it in a in a more positive light. And I think yeah. that it's really important that we continue to can spread that message as best as we can. Yeah, and that and that it's music that's alive nowadays. Exactly. Um, yeah. Sometimes we think, oh, classical music, all dead composers, and mm -hmm. you know, some of us are still living, and and exactly, and, yeah, we gotta share that. <laughs> we gotta enjoy that collectively. I think that's very important as well. Yeah, that I a lot of composers that I have talked to recently have been primarily media composers, mm -hmm. and there are like yourself, there are people who are still composing for the stage and the concerts. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel that you not combats, not the right word, but how do you feel that you kind of work with and or against the, the media composing world? 
I think it's a it's a very different world, and I think I'm I've. I understand how privileged and, and it's a privilege that I fight for every single day. Mm -hmm. It's a privilege to be able to write original music where no one has any kind of input or, you know, is has any creative control except than yourself. I think mm -hmm. as a classical music, contemporary music, whatever you want to call it, composer, a living composer that can write for the concert hall and say anything you want to say with your music. That's a very privileged um, position and a privileged job for me to be able to wake up every single day and write four hours straight, just pencil, paper, you know, piano and write music. I think it's yeah, incredibly privileged. And obviously, it's I've had to work very hard to get here and it's a very competitive world. But I think uh, realizing that is important because it's also a huge privilege to have people sit in a concert hall and pay attention to your music you know 10 minutes 20 minutes to listen to what you have to say it's it's a huge privilege so i think something that i do is i'm very conscious about my audience and you know mm -hmm. who's going to hear this who's the community that's going to be enriched and who's going to connect with the music and how can i serve that community as a composer with the music that i that i'm writing i'm very um you know very interested in telling a story as well i, I don't think writing beautiful music just because it's beautiful music for me that's not enough for me i think there's mm -hmm. it's important to have a message something to say um something that you really want to get across and and in in my case it's it's this passion that i have for celebrating mexico and celebrating the positive things about my home country and also addressing this issue of identity you know who are we who, who what do we connect with and what you know excites us about our upbringing, our lives, and how. So basically, even though my message is very Mexican-centered and it's about mm -hmm. uh, Mexican and it's Mexico and its traditions, I think it's a it's it's a very universal kind of theme. You know, I, I when I listen to Stravinsky, you know, a Russian composer, I'm not thinking about Russian folk music. Music, I'm thinking about my own Mexican folk music. So I think mm -hmm. when you speak from the heart and and you have. Uh, very specific message sometimes it becomes incredibly universal so again so thinking about the audience is, is a huge thing for me and not only thinking about them bringing them in you know bringing them in in the creative process uh you know having them feel feel a part of you know we're in this together we're writing a piece of music that's going to be premiered or you're experiencing a premiere this is what's about to happen this is the orchestra check out these instruments you know so um, yeah, I think that's a very different uh, kind of approach and experience uh, in regards to writing music for a specific purpose, like film or video games, or in, in that case, you're serving another medium, you know, you're, you're supporting a story, you're supporting an image. And I think that's one of the things that I'm super excited about in regards to classical music that you are the story, you are, you know, everything, the, the whole conception, the whole idea, every single note is yours. And that's, I think, I don't know of any other musical genre that where you can do that. I mean, even mm -hmm. pop music is very concerned with what's trending, you know, what do you have to do in order to sell? And yeah. obviously as a classical composer, I, I want to have people listen to and enjoy my music, but I think it's incredibly special that it's, 100% my vision, my music, 
and every single node is mine without any input. I think that's super special. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very special thing to have. And yeah. Can you share a little bit more with me about uh, your mission in blending your Mexican heritage into classical music and, and why it's so important to you? Yeah, so I think it it started because, um, well, I moved to the U.S. when I was 18 or so. Mm-hmm. And after, you know, four, five, six years in, in the music school, academia, you start to think about, you know, what makes me different? Like, why am I writing music? And it's something that I don't, I think it doesn't get asked too often in music school and it should be asked more. Like, I think music school really centers and focuses on the craft, the technique, how to move this note to the next and how to write for this instrument. And music is, yeah, such a, such an art form and such a craft that there's so many layers and so many things we need to know in order to actually make it. But I think this idea of why do we write music is something that we don't ask ourselves too often. And early on, I started to notice that, I mean, I I wrote lots of, you know, classical sonatas and, you know, Mm. quartets and and, and things that were, you know, inspired by the classical canon, classical composers. But eventually when I started to introduce a, a few like folk, Mexican folk elements in my music, I started to notice that, myself as an audience member i was really excited like when i heard my own music and i heard the mexican moment come i was like wow this this is something special and and i think it's very important first and foremost as a composer to really enjoy what you do and and to be honest with the music you want to write i think that's something the audience smells immediately like is this composer trying to impress me or is he or she being honest with right. the the music that she wants to write, you know? Right. Uh, so for, for me that I, I felt that connection with Mexico and, and obviously I also started to notice this common trend between the composers that I really loved and admired. I mentioned Stravinsky, also Aaron Copeland, also American composer, very much into his own folk roots, uh, Bella Bartok, you know, a lot of these composers that we just think of, of them as composers, great composers. They were actually taking inspiration from the pop music of their time, the folk music of their country. So for me, it's not as strange to have this kind of mission and proposal of blending Mexican uh, themes uh, with classical music. And at the same time, I mean, I, th- I think one of the novelties or something I wanted to really um, hone into was like, speaking about real issues about Mexico that were going on, uh, you know, some serious issues like, the, you know, violence in, in the borders between the U.S. and Mexico, and some more just celebratory, just like, uh, you know, blending mariachi sounds with, with the orchestra. So that's kind of how that started. And um, I guess, yeah, I, I think I'm lucky that I that I honestly really enjoy blending these two worlds and, you um, I, I also have to say it's something that wasn't in fashion, like, you know, 10, 10 or so years ago when, when I started to find some success, Mexico has always looked at like Europe for a sense of approval or a model of how music should be made. So Europe still right now is, is very into like the weird new complexity or like lots of noise kind of music. So right. a composer like myself writing 
mostly tonal inspired music with very in your face Mexican sounds. I yeah. even got some pushback from like the academic world in Mexico. Like, can you write that music? And I was like, I mean, I think nowadays you can write anything as long as you have that conviction. And I've been very lucky. I mean, I, I think I stuck to that mission. And nowadays, I mean, I've been played by like more than 30 orchestras and I wow. recently signed a record deal with Universal Music, which is super unusual for a classical composer. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, so I think it's, it's. I mean, if, if I can give a message to your audience, I think it's very important to find what you love and stick with it and don't allow teachers or anyone to tell you what kind of music you should write. I think sometimes we are too concerned with pleasing so many, you know, people and, and, and people we look, look up to that we forget that at the end of the day, who's going to be writing that music ourselves? And we have to be first and foremost, very excited about what we're doing. No? Right, exactly. Because the people, if, if you were confident in what you put out, then people are going to flock to you regardless. And yeah. you will find the people that will enjoy your music. And it, it, it may take a lot more time than you think, but there will be people who will find what you do and and go to it. And that's where your success lies is. And but you have to be confident in it confident in it yourself to find those people because if you're wishy-washy about it nobody's going to want to listen to it exactly and i think i mean in the big scheme of things the most important thing i i think and for a composer is being able to write the music you know like mm -hmm. it's it's like here's a, a california metaphor since i'm based in la but it's a lot like surfing you know sometimes you catch a wave and hey, you find all of this success and you know accolades and awards and whatever. But then you know the you know eventually you're back in the water. But the goal mm -hmm. is to be in the water, you know, to be you know kind of trying to catch another wave. And and the only way to do that is, you know, by doing what you want to do. You know, writing the music you want to write. Eventually, yeah, you'll catch a wave. But th the goal is to stay in the water and and being in the water is that daily process of writing your own music and it's so important to enjoy it you know I, i've met so many composers that don't like the music they write and i'm like then why are you composing like why you know what's the, what's the whole purpose of this if you're not completely convinced with what you're doing you know mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. i know that you are a strong proponent of proponent of being somebody who writes their own music and uh and really tries to f put that out into the world mm -hmm. but i must ask are there any composers that you really do admire i mean i know you've mentioned a few already but are there any more uh composers that you really admire uh from other genres or like other other than classical music or uh, just uh, in general i i guess <laughs> From the classical music world, I really like a lot of American composers. And I guess because I, I, I studied in the US, I, mm -hmm. I was really um, enamored by that big orchestra sound of composers like John Corigliano that uses the orchestra in amazing ways, mm -hmm. uh, Leonard Bernstein, yeah, really loud orchestration. Uh, I guess living composers, Aaron J. Kernis, also super uh colorful in in his orchestration um uh thomas addis mm -hmm. esa pekka salomon um 
uh, it's difficult for composers to think on the spot, but those are oh, some yeah. examples. And uh, as you can see, most of them are uh, great orchestrators. They know how to write for the orchestra and also have kind of like a very direct message they want to convey with their music. John Adams is also a composer mm -hmm. I really like a lot. Uh, and I guess from the film world, I, I, I do like a lot of film music. Um, John Williams, absolutely. Um, Harry Gregson Williams, John Powell. I think there's some really amazing film composers, but I think to, to be at that level of writing film music that sounds like you, the film composer, Mm -hmm. There's a, a ton, a million, you know, a ton of competition and a ton of steps that you have to luckily overcome in order to get to that position. And um, I think that's something that that really discouraged me a little bit about film music. Was like, yeah, I mean, I guess there are mus you know, film composers that sound exactly like that have a voice and that are, are able to have a voice. But most of the film in industry is serving a purpose, you know, making the the picture work. And and I was more interested in in, in exploring a different path, you know. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's very, that's great. I mean, especially I went back this morning and re-listened to your piece uh, that you're we're featuring on this episode. Mm -hmm. um, correct me if I pronounce this wrong, Maria Chitlan. Correct. Correct. Great. <laughs> um, so, and people who are listening to the podcast version of this are going to be able to listen to this piece. And it's interesting that you brought up the American composers because as I was re-listening to it, I was like, wow, I'm hearing a lot of Bernstein in this. And, yeah. uh, and it's great. And especially within the orchestrations and then, and then it kind of just, Fade, the the Bernstein aspect fades away a little bit, and then I start to hear like Thomas Addis a little bit, and uh, and it, it, but all the while it's still uniquely you, uh, yeah. has all those Mexican folk elements in it, and it's it's a wonderful combination of so many different styles and genres and and things, and it's it's a very thrilling piece, and I can't wait for people to listen to it. Yeah, it's I. I always feel lucky, you know. It it was written. I wrote it as a competition piece. So I, I was applying for a national competition for orchestra, Mexican orchestral composers that the Jalisco Philharmonic, which is my hometown orchestra, organized back in 2016. And so I knew I wanted to write like a flashy 10-minute piece that would make the orchestra sound good. And since I'm originally from Jalisco, that state where mariachi music was invented, basically. Oh wow! And I visit, and I often visited as a as a young child the specific like pueblo called Cocula, where that genre was invented. I wanted to kind of pay homage to that genre and to kind of recreate the experience of what it's like to to visit a, a mariachi plaza where you where you have mm. a ton of Mexican bands in each in each corner playing a different song. So as you're walking by, you're, it's like a medley. You're, you're hearing all of different dances, styles, genres within mariachi. And at the same time, it's kind of like a, like a funny experience because the bands are kind of competing with each other to win over the crowd. So I, I wanted to, there's a lot of Mexican sounding music uh, out there and, and especially like in the, I don't know, 1920s through 1960s, there was kind of a boom of 
Mexican composers. I mentioned Copeland, you know, Carlos Chavez, who was a, a Mexican com conductor and composer who premiered a lot of Copeland's works, was also in that mindset of wanting to establish a Mexican orchestral sound. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to write something that was more modern, that it sounded like what's what does Mexican music sound like in the streets of Mexico? Like what's right. that raw feeling and, and that wonderful out of tuneness of the mariachis, et cetera. That's what I wanted to kind of portray in a fun piece. And so I came up with the title first, Mariachi Tlan. It's, it's a made up word. Tlan in Mexico means the land of. Okay. Uh, so it, so I wanted to, it, it's like kind of Disneyland or Mariachi land. That's mm, where okay. it came from. And I came up with that idea uh, of having the orchestra speak and eventually scream the title, which you hear near mm -hmm. the end of the piece. So I had that. And then what I did is I studied a lot of mariachi music. Nowadays, again, referencing the, the, the wonders of the internet, you can download <laughs> right. a bunch of scores and even parts from all of these mariachi songs. So I studied like 30 different songs and, you know, because I wanted the, all of the themes to be original. What happens sometimes with mariachi music that finds its way into the orchestra world, it's, it, it's that it's just a medley or, you know, they're just quoting melodies. And I wanted mm. to write all of the themes myself. So I studied that genre a lot, um, put together the piece, and it's a 10-minute piece uh, for orchestra. And it won that competition. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and, and it has done incredibly well. I think it's been done by 20 orchestras. That was kind of the piece that uh, got me the record deal with Universal Music. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm so grateful to that piece that has opened so many uh, doors, including a Latin Grammy nomination. I was uh, just about to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, so sometimes we get lucky uh, as as composer, but I think it's, it's what we've been talking about. Like, it, it's a very... Uh, extroverted, extroverted orchestra piece about Mexico, about mariachi music, and that I think is what has captured the the attention of you know orchestras. You know they want to have fun playing music, and I think sometimes as classical composers we want to be incredibly serious and too much about our own craft, and I think it's more important to think about what's the violist gonna feel like when he or she looks at this piece of music. Are they going to be enjoying their part? And how can I make that more of a communal enjoying experience? And I, I think that's what this piece has done. It's it's a it's a fun ride for the players, the listeners, and for me as a composer, it also was. Yeah, I had a lot of fun, and I think that that's conveyed in in the piece. be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, 
and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiance. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash thecomposerchronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. something that you mentioned at the top of our conversation um you had mentioned that you had dabbled in in film writing um what is that like compared to your your career as a concert composer i think one of the most frustrating things about film and and i think it happens i I mentioned a couple of other genres i think pop music which i i've also Uh, most recently also have done some really cool collaborations with uh, Mexican rock bands and pop artists writing like huge arrangements for orchestras. Um, That has been super fun. But I think a common denominator is that uh, as a film composer, as a media composer, you're just a piece of the puzzle. You're not the whole puzzle. So what happens is once you deliver your part of the work, you know, your, your music or even like the different layers of your music, the different stems, you don't know what's going to happen with that music. So what would happen in my early experiences with film is I would, you know, pour my heart and soul and, and you know, you know, really give everything I have to every single note that I write. And then when you watch the final product on the film, everything was spliced up and, you know, merged and, you know, redone and remixed. And that was a little bit frustrating for me, like you know, that wasn't how I wanted it to sound. Like I, I felt like I had a better idea or, you know, to how I wanted to contribute to the project. Mm-hmm. Um, so that for me was a little bit discouraging. And I, I, some people are fine with that. Some people feel like, hey, that's the job. You know, you, you're just yeah. doing your part and you just send it out and hope for the best. For me, you know, music, it, something that's so attractive to me in music is form and how we create musical architecture and how we kind of design these buildings that are made up of sound and i'm very i don't know jealous protective about that you know about how i go about my craft in creating narrative kit creating story creating 
you know, structure and the fact that you had to kind of give that away and, you know, think about your music as something that could be spliced and rearranged and remixed wasn't as um, artistically fulfilling to me. Yeah. I, I, I also think that I've been lucky that I've been able to do my classical thing and that even working with universal music, it has been a completely um, bestowed on me the creative control of what I write. So I think that's very special. And again, not not every composer has that opportunity to say, I'm writing my own music and it's going well. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's, it's just a different world. You have to be, I think if you work in the media film kind of world, you have to be prepared to give away a lot of artistic license. And if you're cool with that, well, excellent you know you'll be happy in that world for me music is uh, an all governing entity and everything i do is um you know has a purpose you know i, mm -hmm. I, I think if you're like <laughs> in that sense kind of jealous and protective of that it's very difficult to give it away and um have other people you know um contribute to and, and to to your music and i think as a composer, you're already giving so much up in a good sense. You know, when you write a piece of music, you know, you're just drawing a bunch of circles in a piece of paper that eventually becomes music, right? The, mm -hmm. the performer really brings that music to life, um, which I love. You know, I think, you know, they conductor, great conductors, great performers usually bring so much more to your music than you can ever imagine. So I think there is, I mean, I love collaboration. I think that's something I'm very excited about. Uh, but I also treasure the, uh, having that role and that job of writing the initial cooking recipe that then someone else can cook, you know? Mm -hmm. A chef can, you know, make it his or her own, but I, I like writing the recipe and having the, you know, the privilege of writing the instructions, then someone else can bring them to life. So yeah, two different worlds, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What have been some of your favorite projects to work on? Um, one, one very recent project that I absolutely adored. Last year, I was the um, sound investment composer with the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. It's hmm. kind of like a composer in residency kind of role that lasts a year, but I luckily was able to stretch it over to almost two years because of the uh, pandemic. But what was very special is that the main dish of that residency is to write a big orchestra piece for the mm. uh, Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. But what's really awesome is that it's not just the typical, like, here's the instrumentation, here's the deadline, here's the duration we want, we'll see you at the premiere. That's kind of the main, how, you know, for composers, that's how, kind of how it works yeah. in the classical music world. You get an instrumentation, a duration, and a deadline where you have to deliver the piece. And you, you rarely have that opportunity to connect with the musicians of the orchestra, with the audience of the orchestra. You're usually just like an outsider that kind of comes in for the week of the premiere and then bye-bye, once the premiere is done, <laughs> you're done. No? So it's, a, it's yeah. a, a weird kind of dynamic for composers because it's a, such a lonely profession. You know, we write, write, write. And then you're invited to this birthday party with a hundred people and you're, and you're, they're celebrating you and you're like, 
but my job is like super secure. Yeah. Now, now I have to be such a social person. So it's kind of a weird, uh, yeah. that we have to navigate as composers. And what's very special about this um, LA Ch Chamber Orchestra um, commission is that they created this, uh, what they call the Sound Investment Club, which is basically they ask their patrons, their 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 audience, if they want to join this the process, the creative process with the composer. Mm. They put, you know, they invest a little bit of money that goes into the commission uh, for the composer, and you get to share. I think it's like three or four events that are, you know, spaced out two months at a time or something where you share the creative process with them and you start to explain, mm. okay, these are my initial ideas. I think I'm going to write something about this. Uh, so in my case, knowing that this was going to be the, the process, I came up with a very, I think, cool idea of writing a, a, a piece about Mexican wrestling. So I mm. chose six wrestlers, six okay. real wrestlers uh, that I was going to assign kind of as soloists within the orchestra. So like a violin, a cello, timpani, trumpet, piano, and flute were going to be my six wrestlers. Wow. So the actual musicians were going to wear the wrestling masks. <laughs> each wrestler has its own theme. So, so these themes eventually fight each other and compete against each other in the piece of music. So it was really cool to like share this process with, uh, you know, the Leiko followers, Leiko fans. And to really, you know, make the composing process a little bit more social, a little, a little bit more interactive, more, yeah, more communal. I, I love that experience. The piece is yet to be premiered because everything was, um, you know, sidetracked a bit, but that was right. a, a very incredible process for me to write a piece knowing that I was gonna be able to share it and explain it at such detail with the community of that orchestra we also mm -hmm. had a reading with the orchestra, so I was able to try out stuff, which you never get to do with, as, a, as an orchestral composer, you have to show up with a flawless score where no questions should be asked and just use the very precious um, rehearsal time because it's very, you know, it's very expensive to have a hundred people on a stage. So there's not a lot of room or time for experimentation. And this was something that, you know, that LACO, this amazing orchestra in, in LA, builds into that commission, you know, that you have a, a workshop six months before the, the final score is due. So you can try things out, then go back to the drawing room and do, you know, um, edits and stuff. So that's been one of the most meaningful, you know, commission projects that I've done recently. And luckily I have another one, uh, similar one coming up uh, with uh, New Music USA. They, they designed a new program called Amplifying Voices. Okay. And it's, it's a, it's a co-commission basically working with uh, five orchestras uh, that are going to premiere an orchestral piece. But it also includes that component of actually engaging with each orchestra, traveling, visiting them before the premiere, getting to know their audience, you know, getting to, as a composer, offer some input to, you know, uh, programming. So like yeah. actually suggesting, hey, you know what, there's all of these cool composers that the orchestra should consider. So it's a very, um, that I think for a composer, those are the best experiences where you're taking taken into consideration as 
part of the music making mechanism and not just the score, the, the person that delivers the music, but someone that's actually part of the community. Uh, so that's happening next season with Las Vegas Philharmonic, Luciana Philharmonic, California Symphony in San Francisco, uh, Fresno Philharmonic, and Richmond Symphony. Wow. So yeah, that's very exciting to be able to not only keep writing for the orchestra, but having these re really, you know, intimate and, you know, like meaningful collaborations, I think, are, are very special for composers. You know, uh, as a classical composer, let's say, you know, let's let's think about this. How many times has a an orchestral musician played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in their <laughs> tenure at an orchestra? Yeah, probably thirty times, forty times, yeah. please. No, so they know the music so well. Not only them as a performance, but the audience knows this music so well. And I think that's part of the reason why everyone's crazy about Beethoven. In part, is because we've heard his music a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. So as a new, you know, living composer, that's one of the challenges that we have. That we're not, first of all, we're competing with living composers and dead composers. Like I'm still yeah. competing <laughs> to have a place at the table with Mozart, right? I'm sandwiched yeah. between a Mozart overture, then maybe my concerto and then a Brahms symphony. So that's something that we constantly have to deal with. We're constantly yeah. dealing with the past, but also, um, you know, something that we struggle with is having the opportunity of sharing our, our music or having our audience and players be familiar with our music, right? Sometimes yeah. you, you show up, it's a premiere, the premiere is amazing, and then the piece, you know, gets put away and no one else gets to hear it. So I think that's something that's also unique about this Sound Investment Club is that you get to learn about the piece, you get to hear the, you know, the the creative process to hear it a bunch of times. And then once you're at the premiere, you've lived and breathed this piece of music so much that you understand and appreciate it much more. So I think that's something that that's, you know, could use help in the classical music world is, um, you know, first of all, you know, maybe giving more opportunities to living composers and not just banking on, oh, we're doing all of Beethoven symphonies this mm -hmm. season. Yeah. Okay, can you think about something that's a little bit more, you know, creative, engaging? Yeah. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is just giving people the opportunity to hear new music more. You know, I think sometimes people are like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't like new music. In part, it's because we're always afraid of what we don't know, what we don't yeah. understand. That's why, again, we love Beethoven because we've been whistling his tunes since we were five, you know, it's, it's <laughs> everywhere. So we're like, yeah. oh, Beethoven is a great composer. Uh, well, in part, yes, but also in part, we've just been, you know, we know his music so well that that's why we love it. So, yeah, uh, again, I think, you know, and one thing that I'm excited about or one possibility is um, recordings, you know, I, I think, um, this pandemic really shed the light that, oh, wow, some orchestras don't have video recordings or audio recordings, and they were struggling to come up with content. And yeah. they hopefully, and I, and I think I'm very optimistic about that moving forward, I think video, like high quality video recordings and audio recordings should be a part of 
how orchestras operate, you know, that they offer live music and we can live and breathe it. But that also, if I like a piece that I can go back home and in a week or so, listen to it on YouTube and get familiarized with it. Everyone wins. I, I don't see, I don't see why it hasn't been done. I know there's a bunch of union things and it's a delicate, uh, yeah. but at the end of the day, I think classical music suffers a little bit in, in relation to other genres. And we're like, we'd like to be more popular. Well, let's jump on the train and see mm -hmm. what other genres are doing. Amazing music videos, amazing recordings, reaching out to people, connecting with audiences. And I think, yeah, yeah I'm excited about that. And I think, I, I hope that is changing in the right direction. Now. I hope so too, because there have been so many times where I have gone to a concert and I have gone out of that concert and been like, oh, I wish that there was a recording of this piece. Yeah. And uh, so I can go back and I can re-listen to it, but all, I, all I've got is my memories of this, which are great in their own right. But at the same time, it's like, I really want to listen to that again. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because like, like you were saying before, there are people who are, who are just like, I don't, I don't want to listen to to new music in any way. Mm -hmm. uh, I know listeners of my podcast have heard me tell this story before in me saying that I, I had an experience. I used to work for the Philadelphia Orchestra in their ticketing department. Mm -hmm. um, I love the Philadelphia Orchestra. They they do a little bit too much Beethoven, in my, my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was working at their uh, subscriber services table one day, and uh, a gentleman comes up to me and says, I need you to pass a message along to the orchestra. Uh, I refuse to go back into the hall and listen to... Um, I can't remember whose piece it was, um, but it was it was a Canadian composer, uh, and he was like, I, I, "I'm just not going to be going in and listening to this piece of music. I don't listen to new music. New music has no place in in our orchestra." And I and I said, "Why? Why don't you want this art form to progress?" Yeah, uh, I. I it was hard because I, I had things that I it was in my job description to, to, to say, but <laughs> yes. there's, it's so hard because you want people to, to just embrace it. There, there's, there are so many pieces out there that just, and, and composers that are just looking for, for some love <laughs> yeah. and, and if you just give it a chance, you might actually like it. Um, but people get so hung up on, oh, th this, there's this one little thing about this piece that, uh, I don't like. So therefore the whole thing I don't like, yeah. um, it's, it's just, a, it's a vicious circle because it's like, um, I don't like new music. Okay. So if you don't like new music and you want to, and let's say a composer writes new music, if they don't get the chance to work with orchestras and to actually become better composers, then you know that's why new music is not being programmed because the 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 opportunities are so slim and so scarce that you know as a composer you're also not getting opportunities to become a better composer. So it's there needs to be this ecosystem where composers can try it out mm -hmm. and fail, can improve, and eventually be amazing at writing yeah. for the orchestra. And there's enough room for everything. It's like, you know, even if you go to like an art museum, there's all, always, you know, the, the the classics, the old artwork, but there's always something new. They're always showing 
both sides of the coin. And I, I don't see why that can't become the norm of like every concert has something new. So you can always see, you know, the the evolution of like this is how classical music started and this is what it's become and and you know seeing the lineage. And I think that's something that sometimes orchestras do miss, that they want to play Mozart, Beethoven, or Brahms, and then a new piece. Well, there's 200 years in between here that you also have to account for and explain yeah. with music, you know? It, so, so you have to kind of guide your audience there, take them there by showing them, you know, with performances. Here's the evolution of classical music. Here's what composers have been interested in. Mm-hmm. And if you can, you know, understand all that, you'll eventually love new music. It's like if you, um, you know, if you take, if, if you only show people or you grew up only watching movies in black and white, mm-hmm. and then I take you to watch the new Avengers movie where you wear the 3D glasses and you're, you know, it's too much, you know, like yeah. what happened in between? Like I, I, I was, you exactly. know, watching, watching Char- you know Chaplin movies in black and white and then it, now I what I have color and it's 3D and you know what's <laughs> right it's too overwhelming well yeah thing with classical music there's been an evolution that has taken us to the sounds that you know orchestras can play nowadays I think orchestras have the responsibility or should explain and guide their you know their listeners through that journey so that they can feel equally at home with Bach and uh, Contreras piece, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because I didn't really think about it. Uh, a few years ago, I worked for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. and I they, they, they're they a huge hub of trying to promote new music. And yeah. um, I... I remember just thinking like, oh my gosh, every every week I get to hear something that I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one one particular concert, um, we they, they started off the program playing um, Toto Takumitsu's uh, A Dove Descended Into the Pentagonal Garden. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the title of the piece. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they immediately went to something like Mozart or Beethoven or or Brahms or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and I remember it being such a, such a massive shift. And I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> I was just listening to this piece that that like was all over the place mm-hmm. and almost at at a point of atonality. But and then now now we're going back into something. Uh, that, that makes it feel like it's so much more ancient than it actually is. Um, so yeah. that's interesting that you say that. And uh, I've always been looking for a way to express that feeling of that performance that I got to see. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a perfect way to say it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of simple. I, I think the solution is simple. Like, like I don't understand why, like if you go to a rock concert, let's say the band comes out and immediately they're greeting the audience. Hey, what's up, Philadelphia? Nice to see you. So this next song was written, blah, blah, blah. blah. So mm-hmm. they're bringing in the audience into the experience. Now. So I don't I don't understand why sometimes classical music, conductor comes out, takes a bow, immediately turns his or her back, starts the music, and it's just an hour of music, and then bye-bye, everyone. Yeah. And as an audience member, you, you feel disconnected. You feel like, did it really matter that I was here or not? And yeah. I think 
again some some you know something um positive that i hope that came out of the pandemic is that we realized as as orchestra people that the audience is everything and that, that mm -hmm. without an audience there is no music and that yeah. if an audience cannot attend the concert hall the experience doesn't exist so for me the solution is right there it's it's explaining you know thinking of the concert that you just mentioned maybe just saying hey this first piece is by toru tokamitsu just japanese composer that wrote music inspired by nature so check out how the flutes are gonna sound and then be you know beware of the horns they're gonna have a beautiful solo so then immediately you're you're part of it you're engaged yeah. and then you move on to mozart you can explain what the context of the mozart piece is and why it connects to takemitsu so I, I think that's what's lacking a little bit that you know orchestras um have this idea of like oh as long as we play the best music we're doing amazing as an orchestra yeah. like we're programming all of the mother symphonies we're what an orchestra and for me <laughs> it's like what i mean mm. no that's not that's part of your job but it's not just your job to say this is the music that you should listen to your yeah. job is to convince people to you know be interested in the music that you're programming and explain why you're doing this and even you know get their feedback get their input and create a community that's that's what really i think is uh special for me in the in the orchestra world and another thing is i mean you know this as a music historian is that in the old days everything was new music you know like if mozart yeah. wanted to put on a concert he had to write a new tune and he had to write a new symphony and everything Beethoven and they were very you know you read some of those letters that Mozart wrote to his father he was very concerned about will the mm -hmm. audience like this I'm writing this theme that I think they're gonna really dig and I'm gonna rep repeat it a couple of times so that it, you know sinks in and I'm gonna program this with this so that you know they get excited so I don't eventually you know there was a disconnect where music classical music became more about the the performance why because it's, it's very intricate music that it's really difficult to play but in the old days everything everything had to be new and everything had to be closely related to the audience it wasn't about the music mm -hmm. the musicians it was about a cool you know um entertainment even though no so yeah yeah so i think there's there's an easy way to fix that but i think some things need to change and, and, and I'm excited. I, I think I think things are happening that are, um, you know, will, will eventually change the, in the, the industry. Yeah, I think a lot of orchestras fall within the pit of, oh, we have pre-concert lectures. So if you wanna get involved in this, then you should have gone to the pre-concert lecture. But sometimes it's like, no, I just got out of work. I can't make, make it to that lecture. And then that, that's that's their reasoning for wanting to skip over the whole like explaining your piece. Um, one thing that I, those lectures are usually given by an outsider, someone else, the yeah, the musicologist, the music historian, which is mm -hmm. great. But it's like, oh no, this is a separate entity to what's going to happen. Yeah. I want to hear from the trombonist. I want to hear from the harpist. Why yeah. are they excited about that Mozart piece? Like, tell you know have it be a little bit more of an intimate experience i want to hear from the conductor like yeah I'm, as you can tell i'm really big and i'm really into this idea of 
um, getting rid of this this concept of like the conductor as the a magician, someone you can't talk to is, is the maestro. And yeah. I don't like that superhero status that some classical musicians have. And I want it to be, you know, hey, I want to make classical music cool. And I want to, you know, you know, people feel comfortable going to the concert hall and feeling like you could talk to the violinist afterwards and get her autograph yeah. and speak with her, you know. I think that approachability again. I I do think that there's been a change, and we're slowly getting away from that mm -hmm. uh, tradition of thinking of even composers. We're talking about a lot about composition today. You know, used to yeah. think like, oh, the composer locks himself in the castle and writes the music and cries, and eventually, I think I'm more into like, hey, we're all human here. Let's just you know, let's share what we're doing, and let's get rid of that idea of the genius the genius that you know i i don't like that at all you know yeah uh, it's, and it's still a, a big part of classical music and how people perceive our genre which is very sad you know they, they don't feel comfortable you know and for me also that's part of the, a big reason why i write mexican classical music because i think representation is is very important you know like i want latinos and people from other backgrounds to feel uh, you know that they're important when they go to a classical music concert that they're that they're hearing music that connects with them and not hearing music that has nothing to do with them and even if it's beautiful music you know i think that's part of my mission as well like bringing people in the concert experience and feeling like i have a place in that world as well yeah do you have any projects that you're currently working on that you would like uh our, my audience to to check out uh or, or be anticipating <laughs> yeah something i started um actually during the pandemic and then I, I i've been very excited about and and i'm planning on expanding is i gave a lot of uh orchestra I, I studied orchestration courses online orchestration courses and i had a total of like 120 students wow join i, I did like three two orchestration courses one composition course uh, so I, I, I was super pleasantly surprised to, to find this huge com community of composers, orchestrators that want to learn about the craft and that maybe don't have access to, you know, those kind of uh, courses. Or So I've been doing a lot of that online teaching, uh, which I'm excited about and will continue to do. Um, I'm also, I'm writing a violin concerto right now um, that I'm almost finished with. Uh, what else? But yeah, in general, I invite people to check out my my website, which is my name, juanpablocontreras.com. Um, I, I also have the album we've been discussing, the Latin Grammy-nominated album, Mariachi Tlan, is on Spotify and wherever you get your music. Uh, and I also, I also have many videos on YouTube, including videos of myself conducting my own music. So I encourage you to check them out. And I encourage your, your audience to reach out as well. Sometimes we think like, oh, you know, I, he'd never answer an email. I answer every email. Um, yes. I'm, I'm really interested about hearing from you. And even, you know, if you're interested in studying with me, like I'm, I'm completely open to that. So yeah, don't be shy. If you like what you hear, reach out and let's talk. Even if, if it's just for, you know, sharing a few words, I think I, I'm completely on board with that as well.
Wonderful. And everybody can find all the links to uh, all of those places in the show notes of this episode. Uh, so definitely reach out to him. Uh, it, it's been great to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for great. being on today. It's been lovely to talk to you. And there's, uh, yeah, it's been fascinating to talk to you. We, we took it into some wild, wild topics, but I think, yeah, that's what we need to talk about. And we do. We need to make people think about these things, not only audience members, but orchestra administrators and everyone who's, as you say, trying to perpetuate this tradition and this genre. You know, we have to keep up. We have to update ourselves and, and we have to think about serving our audiences and our communities more, yeah, better, you know, so. Absolutely. I, I really enjoyed talking about all of this with you. Thank you Great. for being on and, uh, and congrats on the podcast again. I think it's it's a great way to you know to share with people and and to demystify what classical music is is about. I think it's super important Absol to just have yeah, the for, you know in my case composers and and people to to come share their their stories and to also uh, you know have people be more excited about the classical music that's already out there. So yeah, what you're doing it's it's great work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And now, please enjoy Maria Chitlan by Juan Pablo Contreras.
This episode of the Composer Chronicles was edited by me, Stephen Chigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. 
find Juan Pablo on social media and listen to more of his music via the links found in the show notes. Find Juan Pablo on social media and listen to more of his music via the links found in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and a review. Music use in this episode was graciously supplied by Juan Pablo Contreras. If you would like to listen to Maria Chitlan outside of this podcast, then you can find it on the Composer Chronicles Spotify playlist. Click on the link in the show notes or go to Spotify and type in the Composer Chronicles into the search bar. You can find the Composer Chronicles on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. When you follow the show on any of those platforms, you'll be kept up to date on all of the latest news. Next week, we have the unique opportunity to tell you about the entire life and works of a single composer in one episode. French composer Lily Boulanger may have had a short life, but she lived it to the fullest, writing some of the most beautiful, brilliant, and intricate pieces of music that to this day remains highly sought after. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey there, Chroniclers. If you love the episode, then you are going to love this Friday's Patreon content. Members of the Revelian and Wagnerian tiers on the Patreon page will get access to the full-length video version of this episode. If you want to view this full episode containing extra conversation not heard on the podcast, just sign up at patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles at the $5 Revelian tier or the $10 Wagnerian tier. See you there. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era. 